This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. It's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. Today on the Cameron Journal Podcast, we are joined by Brent Antonson. This is a, going to be kind of a, a bit of an interesting interview because he and I are both writers at planksip.org, and we had met through that, and Dan Sanderson has been on this podcast, and I've done three other podcasts with him, and so we've become quite familiar. And uh, and so Brent and I are going to be talking primarily about all things international relations but we're also going to get to know him because he and i haven't really ever talked on our own so this is going to be an interesting show that will probably cover some interesting topics but also be a little bit of a get to a get to know you so uh welcome brent to the cameron journal podcast thank you for having me cameron oh well let's begin from the beginning why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your expertise and your background and we'll go from there all right. Well, I grew up, I had a great childhood. Uh, I was traveled lots. I was in the USSR when I was five years old. I grew up traveling. And uh, um, in 1993, uh, I ended up uh, in Estonia. Uh, two years after that, a Baltic province had uh, declared independence from the Soviet Union. And I hated Estonia. This was, yeah, 1993. In 1994, my brother and I took a whirlwind trip around uh, uh, Europe and uh, got into Yugoslavia during the conflict and then got out. And we realized that we really had to drive uh, Europe to get a sense of it. So in 1997, we drove Europe and then uh, we met up with my dad and took the Trans-Siberian Railway. And uh, we, yeah, we flew to Moscow and the three of us took the Trans-Siberian Railway, nine, nine days, locked in the cabin with family. And uh, we made it to, to China. And uh, every three years, we did another major trip. And it ended up uh, in 2009 that we ended up circumnavigating the world by rail. Um, during that time, I, even though I had not found uh, any love for Estonia, uh, I ended up getting some teaching certificates and uh, and went and taught at uh, uh, universities and private schools in Russia uh, in 2000 and 2001. So, uh, and then I came back and then I left again and I taught in China for 18 months, and then I taught in Iraq for 18 months, and then went back to Russia for Sochi 2014, and taught there again for a year. What do you teach? English. 
Okay. Well, it sounds like um, you haven't been home in 25 years. That's what I heard. Off and on. <laughs> Off and on, yeah, yo-yo. Back and forth. Yeah. I love being abroad. Uh, last year, my girlfriend and I drove 7,800 kilometers in France. Uh, I think that's almost every road in France. <laughs> it's almost every road in France. We did a little bit of, of, of Switzerland and Luxembourg, but most of it was in France. And I couldn't believe just how, how much road there was, how much open space, how much sunflower, uh, how much land was dedicated to sunflower and cereal. Um, it's got a, it's as vast. It's just it's it's the the more when I'm in a city and I think that we're overpopulated, I realize that we're over cityfied. We need more people out in the uh, in the boonies, out in the suburbs, because uh, that's actually where you can get good property and uh, and you don't have anybody bothering you. <laughs> uh, yeah, urbanism Twitter just exploded because you said that. Um, every everyone's trying to get us to be more dense and live more compactly and all this type of thing so um there was a video that someone posted this morning of a a building in china or possibly elsewhere in asia where they have twenty thousand people basically a whole town under one roof with shops and salons and everything you could possibly need in in one roof and there's a a vigorous debate going on over whether that's a good thing or a bad thing now it don't these you, they erect these things usually overnight uh sometimes i mean yeah they i mean there's a lot of places where that stuff gets built really fast and the quality isn't quite what we would like it to be when I lived in China, I lived in a hotel that had the 17th, 18th, and 19th floors. They only had three floors of this uh, tower. Uh, there was another hotel that was down below. There was a residence, and there was uh, uh, um, businesses up top. But yeah. down below, they had like a mall. And when it opened, when it finally opened, um, you could find anything you wanted there. I mean anything I could I could finally go find Coke Zero, uh, but uh, they had everything. You didn't have to leave the the hotel to to go and get anything. You could you could just go downstairs and 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 many of the uh, I mean I know I know you're in Seattle, but we've had an an influx around where the SkyTrain runs. Uh, the air, areas that were previously uninhabitable are now uh, now have 20, 30 story, uh, you know, not skyscrapers, apartments, condominiums and uh, and a Safeway at the bottom. And you don't really need to to leave your own dwelling. Uh, it may be a Chinese uh, something <laughs> that they came up with where uh, because there's lots of areas in in china where the cities are built they're just waiting for people yeah which has caused part of their property crisis and their debt crisis re-evergrande and all that type of all that type of thing um yeah i mean we have the most construction cranes in the nation i've been here in seattle for nine years and um a lot a lot of the skyline has changed a lot 
in the time that I've been here. A lot of new buildings, a lot of new construction, a lot of new things have gone up. And and even though we have, you know, out migration, um, including me soon enough, um, where people are still moving here in droves, the the median price of a house in the Puget Sound region is seven hundred and forty eight thousand dollars, and um, yeah, it's uh, it's still quite expensive to live here because of all the people are moving here. So for 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 me, I mean, I I get the whole um, the the lust for rural areas and openness and all this type of thing, um, but I have to say as a as a confirmed city dweller, I don't mind, you know, living in a building with shopping and whatnot on on the bottom. I think that is probably a good thing. It's a better, you know, use of the use of the land, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Especially I mean, it, especially like it in a client. Genius. It, yeah. it just for some reason reeks of uh I don't know, cookie cutter. This is something that's gonna just happen around the world. You're just gonna go downstairs and get everything you need everything from my glasses to fruit to to candy to um like i was thinking in in china i uh i needed medications like sleeping medications that you can't get there because they don't believe in uh in any kind of mental illness or any kind of sleeping problems or that nothing that everything can be cured with an herb so they had an herbal doctor's office which was really horrible to uh to try out their uh their solutions so sadly there are insomniacs in china that are uh likely awake all night wondering why their herbal uh stuff isn't working yeah um and in this country people pay thousands of dollars for chinese medicine irony um and uh, <laughs> so um yeah it's a it's i think the I mean, I don't know, like, I think, I think it also depends on your climate, like, like, imagine those old Soviet housing blocks that they'd had retail on the first floor, in that cold, frigid climate, that would have been real nice, just kind of walk downstairs, rather than have to get bundled up in 50 layers to walk around the block or something. Yeah, well, they do have their kiosks, and a lot of them are, are, are primarily right outside those Khrushchevian uh, apartment blocks that you mentioned um yeah some of them do have uh uh retail down below but ironically they're a lot of them are clothing they're not shopping they're not meant for shopping they're not uh uh they're not in the in the mode of or of uh china or uh the pace of vancouver and vancouver because we added in these new new skytrain routes that we added in a, a subway long after most cities had implemented them so ours is mostly aerial and uh and it went through areas that had previously just been shoddy industrial and stuff like that and now they're they've got a a, they've got a a cool name and they've got a a safe way and a and a a, a liquor store and and i mean you you go home you're not want for nothing you're not going to miss anything you can just go downstairs and get it so yeah yeah so it's um in all your uh in all your travels and dealing with all of these all of these countries um what tell us about what you what you write about what have you observed what is what has happened tell us a little bit more about that 
Well, I've just finished uh, my book. It's gone on sale. It goes on sale July 1st. And this is about circumnavigating the world by rail. And this is uh, this has taken 26 years to write. It took 12 years to take the trips. Uh, we took the world's first three longest trips, uh, train trips in the world. And then we went into North Korea for a week. And then we went Moscow uh, to London, which circumnavigated the world by rail. Uh, by train so that was uh that's been my magnum opus it's been what i've been focused on for years on trying to get out i've worked on it in countless cities and lots of motel rooms and around the world from vietnam to staying in paris for a couple of months to work on it uh and it's finally available it's finally going to be available on july 1st so that's been my primary goal in them in the, on the side I get to write for plank Zip, which is a wonderful uh outlet for creative outlet uh because uh a lot of times I pick the topic and uh I run with it and I try and dig up sources uh to confirm my beliefs and and uh and then I get to post post them on plank Zip and uh and we've got a uh, quite a few readers so um i hope we get more but uh writing for plank sip has really brought me into i was in a car accident prior to this i was i was screenwriting for a small production film production company and i got into a car accident and uh i was uh unable to edit i couldn't i felt like i was hyperventilating all the time and uh when that kind of wore off i was able to start writing and i started writing actually i wrote a, a pivotal piece which i like to uh i like to express to people um that the future language of the world will be broken english that was my first article and that, that mm -hmm. i i gave to uh that i gave to daniel um teaching overseas all everybody wants to learn english everybody on the street and in, in vietnam wants to learn english they want to say hello or they want us they, they want anything uh, let alone the people who are actually studying at schools or studying watching uh watching our movies listening to our music uh the there's a the whole movement is to learn english some form of it so i predict that in 100 years everyone will be, be speaking some degree of fractured english to each other we do that now. We do that now with our local uh, convenience stores. Sometimes we have to change the way that we speak in order to be understood. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think it's fascinating that uh, uh, they thought that, uh, what was that language that, they, that, that was supposed to come out and be the, uh, be the oh, language es of the world? Esperanto. Esperanto, right? And about eighteen hundred people speak it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the movement towards English. I mean, you can't find a copy of Gardening for Dummies in Arabic. Everything is in English. Everything is the movement, the whole push, the translation of ancient texts is all in English, all into English. So the there's four hundred. Uh, million people in China studying English. That's more people than there are in the, the United States. Yeah, it is. It's kind of interesting how 
probably not since ancient Rome have we had such a a widespread lingua franca, you know. Um, and and yeah. I think for the probably the first time in human history on a truly global scale. Um, which I think is pretty uh pretty pretty spectacular you know and it and it is kind of funny like it's like you know you, you go around the world and there are some words that seem to be known by people no matter where you step foot on the planet like uh fuck for example yeah every no matter where you go everybody seems to have picked that one up <laughs> it has global appeal um like <laughs> And they so, can use it as an adjective and as a noun and as an adverb and as a... Yes, yes. I wrote up my very first English paper I ever wrote in college was the entomology of the word fuck, which my professor thought was delightful. And I explained it's the only, one of the few words, if not the only in English, that you can use as every part of speech. And so... Now, what is it? It's et etymology. Where does it come from? I thought it was for, unla for unlawful... Yeah, it so there's a it it is of it, there's multiple kind of places it it came from. There's the obviously the mnemonic, but it, it also has been traced to roots in um in Danish. So oh. it, it there seems to be multiple pathways as to how it how it came together. Um, its earliest forms I think were first written down in the 13th or 14th century, and then it developed to today so yeah it was it was an interesting interesting sort of thing so i bet well they all know hello mm -hmm. uh uh they they're learning sorry um i don't know the few basic words that that i learned like i when i learned chinese um i had a chinese teacher and i learned to say ni hao mu ni hao meow she she and uh have, my name is brent and uh but I couldn't quite grasp anything in that. I've I've had success with uh, French. I had six years of French immersion uh, yeah. in Canada and uh, in a pilot program. So I've got French to some degree and uh, I've got Russian to some degree. So uh, China, China escaped me as a language. Learning a language it completely escaped me. Yeah, I've I've dabbled. I'm I'm fairly proficient in French and German. I've dabbled in Chinese, and it's just too different. Like it's it's a struggle. Like it's a very different mindset. Um, and my brain don't bend that way. Do you know <laughs> that there are fifty five thousand Chinese pictographs? Yes. And when you leave high school, you only know two thousand of them. Now a lot isn't, of those are like isn't that nuts. I know, but yeah. isn't that nuts? Like fifty-five thousand little who there's no one person that could know them all. No, some of them are like lung diseases or logging terms or or just words that are, are completely out there. But to have developed to have developed uh like when we came out with phones, I remember the rush when we came out with uh, the smartphone and we had eight bit. Well, you couldn't do Chinese in 8-bit. You couldn't do Chinese characters in 8-bit. It had it needed 16-bit or 32-bit better yet to, to get the uh, um, the clarity of uh, the um, of the China of the Chinese or Mandarin uh, uh, characters on a phone. And so yeah. I remember that rush. Uh, 
the Chinese were so so much behind it. Yeah, no, that's that's quite that's quite spectacular. So why did you spend most of your life teaching and traveling as opposed to something else? I I uh my girlfriend and I quit our jobs here. She uh I had driven all through um all all the American states. Uh when I was 21, a friend and I drove all the 20 all, all the lower 48 states and into Mexico. And uh so I've been basically in every American's backyard. I've been not too far from from anyone. Uh and I loved it and I wanted my favorite state is Wyoming. And uh so my girlfriend and I decided, yeah, I know. My girlfriend and I decided that because That's of the disgusting. song, <laughs> I had this uh, sort of affinity for cowboys and uh, and stuff, and uh, it's the least populated state. And so we quit our jobs and went to work illegally in uh, in uh, in Wyoming, in Laramie, Wyoming. And uh, so she uh, she I went out to get uh, my my car fixed at a gas station and i was offered a job right there so i took it and i was pumping gas for four bucks an hour and i loved it i was out on the snowy hill plains of wyoming i i was learning who who was who in this little town of ten thousand people i was taking old blue which was a truck out to uh snow clear the snow off of somebody's uh driveway i'd go to napa and pick up parts um, I was absolutely in my glory. Now, if that was the only job I could find in Vancouver, I would be suicidal. But I was loving it in Wyoming. I was, I knew everybody and I was checking oil and I was just pumping gas. I was just, just I putting in shocks. Uh, I just loved it. But my girlfriend declined uh, to find a job, which she had promised to do. Um, and uh, so we ran out of money, we moved to a cheaper motel, and then finally we couldn't sustain it. So that's when I ended up in Estonia. My, my dad had some points and he said, why don't you go meet your brother uh, and your cousins in Estonia? They were missionaries there. So uh, I was only supposed to go for a couple of days. And since my girlfriend and I broke up, uh, I stayed for months and months and months. <laughs> and, uh, and and this was days be before there was wi-fi so everything was writing i was writing about my experiences in estonia uh you know i had neighbors i had russian neighbors in estonia and uh in the khrushchevian apartment blocks you're talking about most of them were five or ten stories the five were walk-ups and i lived on the fourth floor and my neighbors uh, invited me over one night and there was no common language between us. I hadn't started studying Russian yet. And uh, so we're, we're, we're doing sh vodka shots and I go in to use the bathroom and in the, and in the, the bathtub are like 10 large fish swimming around in the bathtub. And they grabbed a fish by the tail and they bonked it on the, the counter. They cut it into pieces and we ate it with the uh, vodka. <laughs> Just like that. Just like that. That's how fresh they wanted their uh, their fish. So, and uncooked, uh, apparently. Uncooked. Uncooked. Just just knocked out. 
yeah comatose yeah stunned stunned fish <laughs> stunned fish and vodka yeah. yes yeah highly recommended yeah um well what about like so, in the in the years after you did all this stuff and you went and taught english here and there and all this type of thing what was the what was the motivation behind all of that I ask this because all of my travels have not been by choice. Like, if I had my choice, I would never leave home. And But then I end up still getting in these situations where I have to go and do this thing or that thing or whatever have you. And so it becomes a whole thing. So I'm very interested by people that are actually motivated to travel. I ha- It was a challenge to challenge myself. When I went to China, um, I went to Zhenzhou, which is a city uh near xian which where the terracotta warriors are so it's only two hours away from there um if that gives you any if you have a map of china in your head xian is uh it forms a triangle with with shanghai and uh anyways it was um it, it was a full metropolis and uh uh i was teaching at a private school and uh i blew up my apartment uh about a month in i um i left the gas on and this had been this had been a scary thing when i was uh when i was in russia i was really scared to leave the gas on and blow up my apartment well i did it in china i blew up my apartment and uh succumbed to the smoke i was pulled up by a security guard and i woke up uh in a burn unit So why did I do this? Um, I don't know. I threw myself into a place where they'd never seen a white person before, not even in their movies. Uh, I was that remote. I was in the suburbs of uh, of a large city that no one's ever heard of. It just happened to be the capital city. Uh, but people would stop on the street and just watch me walk by. Um, it was anti-racism. It was... Uh, it, it was trying to feel what other people feel like when uh, when an entire room is staring at you just because they've never seen anyone like you uh i started going to toastmasters there which was wonderful um uh but yeah it was to to challenge myself and then iraq came into the picture when uh there was a change in government and uh, the new government had a, an education policy uh, that allowed them to hire me, uh, a few more teachers um, for this school. And uh, I went and uh, once, it, once it was finalized, I went to Iraq and uh, almost immediately after teaching in, uh, in Erbil, the capital of uh, the North, I went and taught at the University of Suleimania, which was three hours away by taxi. And uh, I, my roommate was leaving and he had a motorcycle and he said, do you want to buy it? And I'd never bought him. I'd never ridden a motorcycle, let alone um, owned one. So I bought it for $200 before I even knew how to ride it. And I figured out how to ride it. And it would take me five hours to get between the cities on uh on on motorcycle the roads aren't really up to um spec you could say yeah why not move that's a terrible commute oh well i did i did move but whenever i went back i'd go either go back by motorcycle or by uh by by taxi one time i had to 
I this is an oddity. I had to uh, go and watch this woman speak during Ramadan, and uh, I had a taxi driver who drove me three hours one way, waited two hours for me during the speech, and then was driving me back. And at the same time, he was fasting. Well, we're driving along back to uh, uh, Sulaimania, and uh, finally it's dusk, and so we pull over, and he eats a at this roadside stand, eats all of this garbage and crap. And we're driving along at Kirkuk and uh, we come across the entire freeway is on fire. There are pallets and there are, are rubber tires and they're, uh, they're pouring gasoline on them. They are, what, and essentially what they're, this is Al-Qaeda. Essentially what they're doing is stopping all of these petrol trucks that are leaving for Turkey to be refined. The reason they can't refine uh, oil in Kirkuk is because they keep getting blown up. So uh, they they stopped the freeway that they you couldn't get through. Um, they were uh, throwing Molotov cocktails at the uh, petrol trucks and dragging the drivers out and beating the beating the crap out of them. Um, and so my taxi turned around and we drove into oncoming taxi or oncoming traffic you know honking and weaving and just like in the movies and we drove down an exit and i wasn't allowed to be in kirkuk without a special visa because they they kidnapped their own family there so uh you know i would have been i would i would have been 15 minutes from youtube and uh and a sword at my throat and a demand uh it would have been really easy because we were i was the first taxi on on scene but i was never uh, they didn't see me and uh we drove through kirkuk and drove out at uh, a police uh or an army um they have these everywhere you travel in iraq you travel through a police check an army check police army to police army police army about every 10 kilometers and we ended up at an army one and he didn't know anything about what was going on up the road. So we just gave him our passport and stuff and then fled, fled. That is genuinely frightening. Yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I think it's so, it's so, it's so strange to, you know, those things and those situations that's, that that that's a bit beyond it for me. If I were in that situation, I would also be on a plane shortly thereafter. I'll have to say, I that's that's a bit beyond it for me. So, um, you know, minus the fact the the air quality situation with all that burning oil must have been terrible. Oh, it was horrible. It yeah, was horrible. They had really planned this out well. They must have had stacks and stacks of of tires and and uh and pallets ready to just pull all the way across the, the freeway and the flames were 20 or 30 feet so they were all on the other side the guys with the machine guns and the molotov cocktails were on the other side which was where they were stopping all the petrol trucks so we would they were indifferent to us which yeah. was thankful thankfully because otherwise they would have just seen me sitting there uh my my taxi driver opened the door and it was going ding 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 the light was on me 
And he ran back to confer with another uh, taxi driver before we did this crazy drive into the <laughs> into the oncoming traffic. That's insane. So how did you find your way back to Vancouver? Uh, well, I spent 18 months in Iraq, which was uh, just enough time. Uh, I had a, really enjoyed it. Uh, and then um, it was it, it was uh, Sachi 2014. The Olympics were on. Russia was a good guy. It wasn't in the G8 anymore. It was uh, still the G7, but Russia was a good guy and they were hosting the Winter Olympics. Uh, so I went there uh, to a, a town, a city called Ulyanovsk, which is about 12 hours by train from Moscow. And uh, I watched how the, their country floated around the um the idea of having the winter olympics it was nothing like like canada the they they ran it they ran the olympic torch around you know and it and it gets passed from person to person mm -hmm. so they did that but it just wasn't nobody cared nobody cared about the olympics at all and i was i was probably 24 hours from sachi by train mm. and nobody cared nobody went to the events nobody found it interesting and not like the Vancouver uh uh 2010 games where it just seemed like the whole city came alive and we were all united and and in country and and nationalism and patriotism back when that was a good thing we were united we had police from all over the world uh you'd see police on the corner and they were from New Brunswick or or Ottawa or somewhere far from far flung across the country um it was it was a really neat experience but in russia it was nothing so after that um i uh i left russia i went to budapest and then went to paris for a month and wrote and then came home my my mom got had cancer and so i stuck with her through that until uh that uh took her life but in the meantime, I was looking around at independent film and uh, I'd always wanted to get into the film industry. And uh, so I went to a bunch of things just after my mom had passed away. And I had another another teaching job lined up in Russia. And instead, uh, I stayed in, and got a job in the film industry, which was the greatest job I've ever had. And then I get into a car accident. Well, considering our present relations with Russia, I think you've lucked out on that one. That would have been a little <laughs> awkward. It so. is awkward. It's it's awkward talking to my friends now who are there. They used to talk about everything, and then now they're they're sheltered. They don't. Uh, they 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 parse the words. They they don't. Uh, they don't speak like. I, the, the government is trying to find them because they're between the ages of 16 and 45 or 65. Yeah. Um, one's 41. So uh, they're after him um, to conscript him. Yeah. My, my one Russian friend, her and I only had contact over Facebook, which is now banned. So I haven't spoken to her since the invasion. Oh, I spoke. Geez. Yeah. I spoke with her the Sunday like the Sunday after the initial invasion before Putin banned Facebook. And I wrote an article on the Cameron Journal 
um a Sunday dispatch. Um and I, I wrote about about Dateline Moscow and our, our like our final conversation and her saying, tell everyone that no one in Russia wants this war, just Putin. Um and uh and so I uh so I, I wrote about that and I have not I have not spoken to her since. Um no other means of contact. I you know what I left her before we departed. I gave her all of my information phone number address all this type of thing everything i don't know if it's safe for her to reach out um i imagine given how things are going it may be dangerous for anyone who has contact with the west right now i don't know so i'm trusting in her wisdom and judgment on that she has my information I just may not be safe for her to reach out at this time and that's okay but it's it's been i miss her a lot um and her and I, when she lived in this country, her and I had grown really close. And uh, and so I, I miss her a great deal. And I, as I put in the dispatch, I said, I never thought, you know, I would be in a situation where I'm having a last conversation with a friend because of war. I'm like, what in the 1938 is going on? Like, <laughs> I don't have the right clothes for this, you know? Um <laughs> Like I need a fedora and a better suit, um, and so uh, yeah, so I it, it's a very difficult. It's a very I had difficult a friend thing. this morning in Russia, and he had, and he said I'm ready to commit suicide, and I wrote mm -hmm. what, 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 and he goes, no, it's just a joke we all say. Really, Not that's that dark sense said. of Russian humor I love. Oh no, that dark acerbic sense of humor just brings me endless joy. People find it very offensive. I'm like, oh no, I fucking love it. Like, I'm all about it. It's great. So <laughs> that's now I um it yeah, it was it it was really I, I I'm kind of sad because I was the one that encouraged her to go back to Russia. Her parents or her mother has passed her father is elderly and i encourage her to go back because of how anti-immigrant things were getting in this country and when trump was elected i it was kind of said i don't think it's going to be safe for you for a lot of us you know but you can get out you should and i feel kind of bad for encouraging her to leave now because it now i'm kind of like no, no, but the opposite. Like you should come here now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, jeez, it's yeah, it's a difficult, it's a difficult thing. But that's that's my. That's, Does she have the option of coming back? No, her green card is gone. To maintain the green card, you got to be here every six months, and she didn't do that. So, no, she doesn't have an out. She doesn't have. I asked her, you know, when it first happened, I said. I said, you know, if you have to get out, like, can you come back to America? And she's like, no, I don't have the paperwork. She's like, I'm kind of stuck here. So, Jeez. yeah, ah. it's quite sad. It's, it's quite very sad. sad. No, this is one of the problems with my life. I, my friends are spread all over the country and all over the world, which means I like don't have anyone to get a cup of coffee with. You know, it's kind of like it's like you have so many friends. I'm like, yeah, I literally don't have anyone to get a cup, cup of coffee with to get lunch with. <laughs> um. You know, because all of my people are every other where other than here. So, um, yeah, it's a... How do you... Speaking of that, though, how do you stay in touch with all the people you've met along the way? 
Well, simply through the internet. Simply, what do you what do you mean? I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't know I how I could do it without social media. There's people internationally that, if it weren't for social media, I would never talk to them. You know, sort of thing. Yeah, well, at, nor would I. I wake up and wonder what the GDP of Yemen is. Um, you know, I wake. I, I wonder. That's also true. <laughs> yeah, I have to. Uh, I I try to keep uh, abreast of all global politics. Um, what's happening? Where? Uh, whether it's that 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 screw up in the Suez Canal or um, uh, or it's a a mass bombing or something. I don't know. I just follow it. I'm a news junkie. I always have been, uh, and I'm less and less uh, prone to the media. I don't know who my sources are now. I can't really tell you because they're usually third hand or fourth hand and out of context. Um, I trust the South China Daily uh, and I trust Al Jazeera. Uh, I don't know who else I can really trust for um, for saying. Um, sane uh world oh a sane worldview i can't trust cnn anymore i can't trust uh uh yeah i can't trust legacy media why do you think that is they changed their tune to, uh, so that they didn't focus on the big things and they didn't uh they didn't uh focus on the small things um we I found out about this uh, this uh, boat or the submarine that goes around Titanic, and five people were in it, and yep. I find it I find it on I think Clown World on uh, on uh, Twitter they're saying how crazy it is that somebody would go in this thing, and then all of a sudden is it's missing, and I find that out from a different news feed, and then I find out that. It, they're all dead through another one um you know it's not i can't go to cnn and be current and kept current uh if, if even if even a, kept abreast of what's happening um you know they might not show the super bowl score anymore uh or what's happening i don't know it's just everything's changed in the last two years i used to refresh the cnn page the bbc page to to see what was new now I hardly even go there. I do love a South China Morning Post, though. They're a little too pro-CCP for my taste, but which makes sense. But sometimes I'm kind of like, that's a little too pro-China. But I do I do enjoy them for that outside perspective. I'm also a big Le Monde reader. Oh, Le Monde as well, yeah. They're just yeah. a few days behind everything. It's the French. They don't do anything on time. The French haven't <laughs> been on time their entire history. They're a day late and a Deutschmark short. Um, so, <laughs> but all right Brent. well this has been absolutely delightful i don't know if this has been very entertaining for the listener but i've enjoyed getting to know you and getting to learn a little bit more about you um why don't you tell us where we can find you online and um remind us about your book and when it comes out again well my book is called ties that bind uh and it, it you can go to brentantonson.com so that's B B R E N T A N T O N S O N dot com, and uh, you can order a uh, a soft cover through there. You'll be able to order the um, the ebook uh, on July first, and um, yeah, it's been a twenty six year writing project. 
Uh, it's, it's it's gone through two and a half uh, editors. One died halfway through it. Um, it's been a significant, like I say, it's my magnum opus. So uh, it's uh, tons of work has gone into this. Was so it's I hope it's a phenomenal read. Um, and yeah, I'm on uh, Brent Antonson on uh, Facebook and uh, Twitter and uh, anywhere else you happen to look. Usually, <laughs> under All my right. name. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for coming on the Cameron Journal podcast. Thanks for having me, Cameron. It's been great. That's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners. So please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Cowan on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal Podcast.